Have you ever found yourself wondering about the role that Canadians played in old-time radio? Well, wonder no more. During the next 60 minutes, we'll delve into the careers of actors, writers, and directors who went abroad to find work, as well as those who stayed right here in Canada. Join me as together we explore Canadians in old-time radio. I'm Devin Wilkins, founder and president of COTRA, the Canadian Old-Time Radio Alliance, welcoming you to another edition of Canadians in Old-Time Radio. First, from our Made in Canada file, an episode of Mystery Theatre from 1967. Now is the time to tell of the unaccountable, of apparitions by night and phantoms in shadow. Time to tell strange tales of fantasy and the supernatural. Mystery Theater presents The Hitchhiker by Alan King. The stretch of road between Bainville and Bowden is about 15 miles. I used to drive over it about once a month with George Kirby. George was supervisor for the J.K. Landon Land Company, and we used to make a monthly inspection trip over his territory. We usually worked it so that we ran into Bowdoin at night. It isn't a big town, but there's a good hotel there, and we could always make it back to our hometown before dark the next day. We would take turns driving. When George was driving, sometimes I'd sit with him. If I was pretty tired, maybe I'd move into the back seat and sleep for a while. This particular night, about six months ago, he was driving and I was sitting in the front. It was a poor sort of night. It had been raining and there were patches of mist that came at you when you least expected them. I'd been telling George about a farmer I'd met. <laughs> This'll kill you. The guy looks me right in the eye and says, Boy, you won't sell me one of those things. I invented one myself ten years ago. <laughs> Did you see it work? Sure, he showed me. You should have heard the noise. Sounded more like a young threshing machine. <laughs> you gotta hand it to those farmers. You know, those guys can make anything and fix anything. Well, I remember one once in Indiana someplace. George, yeah, look out! There's someone in the... Where? Oh! Where is he? He must be underneath. I hit him, I know that. Yeah, he's underneath. Looks like he's wedged under the crankcase or something. Well, is he alive? I don't know. Are you, are you hurt badly? Can you move? He must be knocked out. Wait, I see. His legs are clear. I think we can get him out. Tell you what, son. Get in. Ease her forward when I tell you. Okay, George. But easy, Sam. Go very, very slow. We got him. 
I'm not sure if he was alive. His face was all mucked up with gravel and oil. But he was dead when we got to Bowdoin. We talked to the police. There was an inquest later. George wasn't held. It was an accident. George Kirby and I went about our business. I'm uh, Larry Mason. I'm a salesman. I drive that stretch of road between Bainville and Bowdoin once a week. In one place you come to a curve where there's a sort of ravine on one side and quite a drop on the other. It's not dangerous. There's a good strong guardrail, clearly marked. The locals just call it the gap. Uh, this night, oh, a few weeks ago, I was driving alone, just coming to the gap, when I saw somebody ahead of me at the side of the road. It was a man giving me the thumb. I pulled up and opened the door. On a lift? Thank you. Come on in. Going down to Bowdoin? Yes. Be there in ten minutes. Uh, don't often see anybody around here at night. Cigarette? think I'll have one. Don't blow that light out. Huh? Hold it there a moment. Well, what's the matter? Why are you looking at me like that? It's all right. You can put it out now. Well, thanks. What is your name? Larry Mason. Why? You're not. I'm not what man? I'll know him when I see him. Who who is this man? What do you want him for? He killed someone. Killed someone? It was here. On this road. He ran him down and killed him. Oh, an accident. He said he wasn't to blame, but he was driving the car. The man was just standing there. Hitching a ride, just as I hitched a ride with you. Well, maybe it was foggy or something. My driver should be careful in a mist. Look, uh, suppose you find this guy, uh, what are you going to do? Kill him. Now, wait a minute, you, you can't go around killing people like that. They, they said it wasn't his fault, didn't they? Yes, but I know better... I will find him. I didn't like it. I was sure the guy was batty. Anyway, he didn't say any more then. He seemed to shrink back in his seat, almost as if he wasn't there. I stepped on it. The sooner I got to Bowdoin, the better I'd like it. And just as we were pulling up, I spoke to him again. Look, about this guy you say you're looking for. Yes. You're not really going to kill him, are you? Yes, I am. But Why? Because he killed me. What? I'm the man he ran over in his car and killed. Whether the door on his side opened or not, I haven't any idea. But I do know that suddenly he was gone. I just sat there. I lit a cigarette and kept telling myself the guy hadn't been in the car. 
He hadn't talked to me. And all the time I knew I... I didn't know what I knew. I threw the cigarette away and went in for a coffee. Biddy Kirk was behind the counter with the usual grin all over her fat face. Hiya, Larry. Hi, Biddy. Coffee? Yeah. And what else? We got some nice... Hey, what's the matter with you? Looks like you want something stronger than coffee. Uh, coffee will do. Nothing to eat. Are you sick or something? No, I'm not sick. Okay. Here you are. Here's your coffee. Thanks. Look, are you sure you're okay? You don't look very good. I'm okay. Say, uh, Biddy. Yeah? Do you remember about... Oh, I guess it must have been a few months ago. There, there was a... Hi, back... Biddy. Jack. Larry. Hi. How's the coffee tonight, Biddy? Strong enough for you. Swell. Coming up. Anything to eat? I don't know. I'll drink the coffee first. Okay. Here. Well, call me if you want something. Gotta get back in the kitchen and get some sandwiches made. You just drive in from Bainville? Yeah. Why? Well, I, I just wondered. What's on your mind? Lose a big order or something? No, I... Well, I, I gave a guy a lift down here. So what? So did I. Do it all the time. What's new about that? There's something funny about the guy. I picked him up just the other side of the gap. Game of the creeps. Wait a minute. What'd this guy look like? Oh, uh, pale sort of hair. Dead-looking, grayish sort of face. Yeah? Go on. He, uh, he talked about an accident. I lit a cigarette, and he, he sort of peered into my face when I struck the match. And then he said... I wasn't the guy he was looking for. Something like that. Where did you drop him? Brought him right into Bowden. Stopped the car and... He was gone, just like that. Larry, I picked up that guy myself. Just the other side of the gap. I shouted at him. It wasn't the same man. He was kidding me. It wasn't possible. It... But the description tallied. The only difference was he'd only ridden a couple of miles with Chuck and hadn't said anything about the accident. Accident? What accident? I'll tell you in a minute. First of all, when I'd brought him into Bowden, how did he get back to the other side of the gap in time for you to pick him up? You were right behind me. He couldn't. Not unless he's got a twin brother. Or unless he's a ghost who likes hitching rides. Yeah. That's about the only explanation. <laughs> hey, what is this? You trying to tell me you believe... Uh, just a minute, chum. Biddy? Yeah? Getting hungry out there? Can you come out a minute? Sure. Now, what'll it be? Corned beef on rye? Biddy, uh, I want you to tell me something. Can you remember an accident between here and Bainville? Oh, I can remember plenty of them. Oh, yes, I know, but this one... Well, I, I, I don't know the name of the man who was driving... I don't even know when it was, but he hit a hitchhiker. A hitchhiker? Can you remember it, Biddy? Sure, yeah. Yeah, that was George Kirby. He was driving out very long ago. And Sam Henderson was with him. Yeah, they had the inquest up in Bainville. Yeah. It was a misty night, I remember. George said at the inquest he couldn't see very well, and he hit this guy before he even saw him. Who was the guy he hit? Do you know? Oh, he lived up by the Gap. I know I didn't really know him. Seen him in here a couple of times. He was a writer or something. What's all this about? Well, what did he look like? 
pale sort of guy. Looked like he needed a good meal. Kind of mousy colored hair. That sounds like... What sort of a voice had he? Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, kind of quiet and slow, I think. That's what I wanted to know. Okay, thanks, Biddy. Anything to oblige. I guess I'll go back to my sandwiches. Give me a shot when you're hungry. Okay. Come on, Larry, what is all this? Chuck, the guy you and I picked up is the guy George Kirby ran over and killed. Are you out of your mind, Larry? He's dead. Dead or not, the guy I picked up looked right into my face and said he was after the guy who ran him down and killed him. And when, uh, you're making this up. And when he found this man, he was going to kill him. I don't know how long we sat there arguing it out. In the end, we didn't know whether we were sane or crazy. We had all the facts. They'd only fit into one pattern. And that pattern was impossible. In the end, we did come to one conclusion. It seems to me, whatever way you look at it, this George Kirby may be in danger. Yeah, but from what? Or from whom? Somebody's threatening him. Or trying to scare him. Somebody pretending to be a ghost. There must be two people pretending to be a ghost. There's one thing certain. The man you picked up tonight can't be the same man I picked up. It's not physically possible. Chuck, I don't believe in ghosts any more than you do. But what happened tonight can't be explained. It can. It must be. Well, maybe these two men we picked up were twins. Triplets. The third one was the guy who was killed. Well, that's fantastic. Is a ghost any less fantastic? No, but... Well, anyway, we've got to warn this guy, Kirby, that someone's after him. We don't even know him. Oh, we can leave a message with Biddy. Uh, give her a shout. I want something to eat anyway. Well, Biddy, uh, how about a sandwich? Ah, getting hungry now, eh? Yeah. Uh, give me a corned beef and rye and a dill. And uh, another cup of coffee. Now, how about you, Larry? Uh, that'll do for me, too, I guess. And, uh, Biddy? Yeah? Will you be seeing this, uh, George Kirby sometime? I don't guess so. He comes in pretty regular. Could you give him a message? Sure, sure. What is it? Well, just tell him that... Well, we found out that somebody's threatening him, see? Threatening him? Who is? Well, we, uh... We don't quite know. Tell him not to pick up anybody between here and Bainville. I don't get it. It's all right, Biddy. He's in danger. And we don't know him, so the only thing we can do is leave the message with you. Well, I'll tell him. But he'll probably laugh in my face. Well, maybe he will. But tell him anyway, see? What's the matter with you, Biddy? Something on your mind? Yeah, I, uh, I got a message for you, George. Message? <laughs> Too bad you weren't in a week ago. The guys could have told you themselves. What guys? Oh, Larry Mason and Chuck Reynolds. Never heard of them. Well, they left this message anyways. Said to tell you somebody's threatening you. Threatening me? Yeah. And to not pick anybody up between here and Bainville. <laughs> What's this, a gag? Well, I don't know. I tell you, George, I don't know what it's all about. Well, who was threatening me? Well, I didn't hear much because I was back in the kitchen. But they did ask me about that accident. You had asked a lot of questions well, about it. Well, it was an accident. They said so at the inquest. Yeah, yeah George, I know that. Nobody's got any right to rake that up and threaten me. Sure, George. It wasn't your fault. We know. It wasn't, you hear? It wasn't my fault. Who's this? this Larry Mason and, and Chuck, whatever his name is anyway. I don't know. Then what right have they got to now, come around? Now, don't get excited. They wasn't threatening you. They said somebody else was. Yeah? I'll bet they're trying to put a scare into me or something. Well, you can tell them from me. They can keep their trap shut or there'll be trouble. 
The next time I saw Biddy, I heard how George Kirby had taken the warning. That's what you get for trying to help somebody. Anyway, I'd done what I could. And as the days went by, I began to feel as though I'd dreamed the whole thing. It was all too fantastic. Then one day I met George Kirby face to face. I'd gone to Indianapolis for a sales meeting. And I was sitting in the hotel lobby after dinner when a big man came up to me, looking full of fight. Are you Larry Mason? Yes. I'm George Kirby. I want to talk to you. George Kirby? Yeah. I just want to tell you, I don't like being threatened. Now, look, I wasn't... I got your message. I don't like that sort of thing. Don't be a fool. I'm not threatening you. Sounds like it to me. Listen. I picked up a guy between Bainville and Bowden. He looked me over carefully, asked my name, and then said I wasn't the guy he was looking for. But then he said he was looking for the man who killed somebody in an accident on that road not long before. Go on. He said when he found that man, he was going to kill him. Is that all? I figured he was a kind of a nut. He tried to make out he was the man who was killed. I'm supposed to believe all this? I don't care whether you believe it or not. But I'll tell you this. That same night, a friend of mine picked up the same man. And we both talked it over and decided the least we could do was to warn you. Thanks. Well, we figured maybe the man you killed had a, a brother who maybe thought you'd got off easy. David Quinn hasn't any brothers. I found that out. Well, anyway, that's what happened. Now you know about it, you can do what you like. The way he treated me, I didn't care what happened to George Kirby. But whether I cared or not, I was to be there when it did happen. And because I was there, I found myself giving evidence before a coroner's jury. A jury inquiring into the death of George Kirby. Now, Mr. Mason, will you tell us what you saw on the night in question? Well, I was driving from Bainville to Bowden. I, I guess I left Bainville about 11 p.m. Did you see the Kirby car? Well, there was a car ahead of me. I, I could see its taillights. Uh, but I didn't know then whose it was. Yes, go on. As a matter of fact, it passed me. I could see it for a while, and then it went around a curve, and I lost sight of it. But when did you see it again? A few minutes later. I came around a curve myself, and there was this car picking up a hitchhiker. Before I caught up to it, it was on its way again. You're certain that someone got into the car? Yes, yes, quite certain. In fact, you will swear to it? Well, I... Yes, I will. Is there some doubt in your mind? No, no, someone did get into that car. I see. And then what happened? It, uh, it drew ahead of me again. Then I came to the place in the road they call the Gap, and there was a car piled up against a rock on the south side. The car you've been telling us about? Yes. When you say it was piled up against a rock... Is there not a sort of cliff at that point with guardrails protecting motorists? Yes, although there are a couple of places where there are big rocks. You mean the guardrail runs a certain distance and then there is a rock and then the guardrail continues past it? That's right. And this car was piled up against one of these rocks? Yes. What did you do? Well, I stopped and ran over to the car. It must have turned over at least once. The top was all smashed in and so was the front. Kirby was behind the wheel. 
He seemed to be crushed. And there was another man in the back who didn't seem too badly hurt. That was Samuel Henderson. Yes, I, I got him out of the car. Then I tried to get at Kirby, but I couldn't move him. So uh, all I could do was watch for a car passing, which I did. I flagged it and sent Henderson down to Bowden for the police and some kind of a tow truck. And you waited there until they came? Yes. Was there anyone in the front passenger seat of the Kirby car? No. Are you quite certain? Quite certain, then there couldn't have been. Why do you say that? Well, because the front was so badly crushed, he would still have been there. But you told us a moment ago that you saw the Kirby car stop and pick up a hitchhiker. Do you still say that? Yes. Then how do you account for the fact that there was no one else in the car when you found it? I can't account for it. Maybe he was in the back seat and got out before I arrived. Perhaps. We shall see about that. I may wish to examine you further on this point. You may step down now. Mr. Henderson, you were riding with George Kirby on this trip? <clears throat> yes, sir. Will you tell us what happened after you left Bainville? Well, I was dozing in the back seat. We take turns driving. I was asleep, I guess, till, till something woke me up. What was that? The car stopping. I sort of opened my eyes and saw George lean over and opened the other front door and a man got in. No doubt about that. None at all. I didn't see him very clearly. I... I didn't really want to wake up. I, I was tired. Did you, in fact, stay awake? More or less. George was talking to this hitchhiker, but the man said almost nothing. That is, until just before the accident. What did he say then? He said, uh, you are George Kirby. And George said, yes. Then the man said, you killed David Quinn. That woke me up. David Quinn was the man Kirby had killed in an accident some months before? That's right, sir. I was, I was startled. George looked at him and said, so what? Then the man said, I have been waiting for you. George started to say something, and then suddenly the man said, look out, there's something, there's someone ahead. And he seemed to reach over and grab the wheel. The car swerved, and we crashed. I don't remember much else till Mr. Mason pulled me out. Mr. Henderson, you realize that all you have told us is on oath. I realize that. It's true, every word of it. Was there any person sitting beside George Kirby in the front seat when you recovered consciousness? No. Yet you insist that there was someone there till the moment of the crash. I do. I have said that on my oath, and it's true. How do you account for the fact that there was no one there afterwards? I can't account for it. I only know that's how it was. Very well. You may step down, but do not leave the court. You are a trooper with state police? Yes, sir, I am. I understand you were called to the scene of the accident in question between 11 and 12 at night. Yes, sir. What did you find on arrival? I found the Kirby car piled against a rock on the south side of the road. It had hit the guardrail and bounced off it and then turned over. Mr. Mason was waiting for me. I found George Kirby pinned behind the steering wheel, apparently unconscious. I had brought up a truck from the police garage... And we had to use tools to get the door off on the driver's side so we could get Kirby out. How badly was he injured? He was dead when we got him out. What did you do then? I took a statement from Mason, and then I went back and examined the marks of the car on the road. I saw that it had apparently swerved right over to the guardrail. How do you come to that conclusion? Uh, by the skid marks. Kirby must have applied the brakes, and they left marks. Did you examine carefully the front of the car and the roof? Yes, sir. 
and the whole front and top had been smashed. In your opinion, if anyone had been riding in the front passenger seat, could he have gotten out? He could not. I will swear to that. You have heard the evidence of Mr. Mason and Mr. Henderson to the effect that Kirby did pick up a passenger. Yes, sir. All I can say is he must have got out before the crash. But Mr. Henderson says he did not. I don't know about that, but I will swear that no person was in that front seat at the time of the crash. It couldn't be. They had Henderson and me back on the stand, and they made monkeys out of us. It wasn't so bad for me. A hitchhiker could have got out of that car without my seeing him. But Henderson wouldn't budge an inch from his story. In the end, we both slunk out of the inquest with everyone convinced we'd both committed perjury. Henderson took me over to the hotel to have a drink in his room. I sure needed it. Who was he, Mason? Who was he? You know, don't you? Yes. Yes, I know, and yet... And yet it couldn't have been. You imagined it. And I imagined I gave him a lift three or four weeks back. I imagined he said he was going to kill George Kirby. And Chuck Reynolds imagined he gave him a lift, too. I imagined him. But I'll never forget him. Neither will I. Neither will I, because he... Oh, don't say it, Henderson. After all, we don't believe in ghosts, do we? I believe in what I see, Mason. Then you didn't see anything. Mind if I help myself? I need it. Now, please go ahead. Thanks. There's just one other thing I didn't tell them at the inquest. What was that? Where the hitchhiker grabbed the wheel and swerved the car. Well? It was precisely at the spot where David Quinn was killed. The Hitchhiker by Alan King was item three in a four-part series of Tales of the Supernatural, written for and presented by the Mystery Theater, with John Vernon as Sam Henderson, Cease Linder as George Kirby, Frank Perry as Larry Mason, and Hugh Watson as Old Quinn. Beth Lockerbie was heard as Biddy, Tom Harvey as Chuck, Jack Creeley as the coroner, and Alan DeRamus as the state trooper. Sound effects were by Alex Sheridan. Technical operation by John Skillen. This is Bill Lawrence speaking. Next on the agenda, an episode of People Are Funny from February 21st, 1956. And the Canadian abroad being featured is Art Linkletter, whose birthplace was Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Do you know the difference between a fib, a white lie, and a whopper? You be the judge. You'll hear them all tonight on People Are Funny. <laughs> yes, NBC presents John Goodell's production of People Are Funny, transcribed from Hollywood. And now here's America's top master of ceremonies, 
Art Linkletter. so much fun playing guessing games in this program, we decided to guess a little bit about age. And since everybody wonders what everybody else is in the way of age, let me see some hands of people who think they're good guessers. Where are you from? Where do you live? Canada? Where's that fellow from? Hollywood, where are you from? New York City. Where's this young fellow? Where's this fellow from? Ann Arbor, Michigan. Come on over, Ann Arbor. Now, uh, how do you do, sir? <laughs> now, what's your name? Jay Bolt. Jay Bolt? B-O-L-T. Bolt. Oh, Bolt. Keep it easy. What, <laughs> what do you do, Jay? Well, I'm a professor at the University of Michigan, sir. Well, good for you. And what do you teach? I teach mechanical engineering. Mm-hmm. And you had a good football team this past year. Very, very good. You're out here as a tourist now. Well, Professor, let's see how you well you do in the matter of age. Now, let me pick a woman. That lady right there in the green coat. Would you come on over here? The, yes, the lady in the pretty red hat and the green coat. You come on over here and you take a look at her, Jay, because it's going to be worth $1,000 to you if you can tell me how old she is when she gets here. I'm looking. Oh, she has pretty gray hair right here. What'd you say? Can't hurt my feelings. Can't hurt your feelings. I'm proud to live as long as I well, now, you tell us your name and not your age. Lila DeBlanc. Where are you from, Lila? Oh, uh, Louisiana. New Iberia, Louisiana. Well, how do you do, man, you all? <laughs> now, Jay, take a look at her. $1,000 in cash, if you tell me her age correctly, and half off of your prize for each year that, that you miss. Fifty-seven. Fifty-seven. Three years. How old are you? S- Sixty. Sixty. Yeah. And you can prove that, can yeah. you? Yeah. July the 9th. July the 9th. 1895. 1895. That's right. Sixty. And uh, you missed it by three years. You get one hundred and twenty-five dollars. Not bad, huh? Thank you. Your grandmother yes, buys... I have about step- 24 grandchildren. You have 20... Step-grandchildren. Step-grandchildren. Yes. What are step-grandchildren? I love them all. Well, I was... Uh, uh, Mr. DeBlanc had step had children, and I remarried. You know, he... I married him, and he had children. I didn't. Oh, well... I'll get it. You get it, yes. and you got it, and you yes. have it, and yes. we're going to give you a bottle of Balenciaga perfume from Thank France. Goodbye. Goodbye, Professor. RCA Victor has just announced a new tape recorder. It's high fidelity. Push a button. Record. Like this. RCA Victor's high fidelity tape recorder has three speakers. Now, play it back. RCA Victor's high fidelity tape recorder has three speakers. So simple. Push a button, record anything you like, or enjoy pre-recorded music on tape. Every sound is crisp, clear, new orthophonic, high-fidelity sound. 
You'll find dozens of uses for RCA victory. High fidelity tape recorder. As low as $189.95. Try it yourself. At your RCA Victor dealers. Quite interesting, huh? Ladies and gentlemen, this is an odd-looking machine. You should all be familiar with it because it is a lie detector. But it's a lie detector that is operated by a slight stratagem, a device called a push button. When I push it once, like this, it goes to fib. If I push it twice, white lie. And so on through falsehood and a whopper. Now, this button is going to be connected to a fellow who's in with us on a big double cross tonight. And to let you in on the whole plot, I'm going to bring out Mr. Morales. Jack Morales, would you come out, please? Come on over here and meet, meet the folks. Ladies and gentlemen, Jack is a very special guest of ours. Invite him down here to be on the program. Tell us what you do, Jack. I coach at Harvard schools and attending L.A. State College. What do you coach? Football, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You're a single man. Oh, yes. And you have a very good friend by the name of... Uh, uh, Louis Foglia, commonly known as Ouija. Ouija Foglia. What does Ouija do? He's a cement contractor. Yeah, and what's going to happen to him next Saturday? Oh, boy. He's getting the act. He's getting married. Yeah, and you're going to be the... Uh, best man. The best man. Now, who's he marrying? Diane. You've given me a lot of information about Louis. Yeah, We've worked together quite well. And the reason, ladies and gentlemen, is that this couple who is going to be married next Saturday night are being held backstage, and they have no idea that their best man is here tonight. Where do they think you are? The football banquet giving a lecture. And they, in fact, invited you to come down and see him on this show. Oh, yes, but I couldn't make it. Yeah, that's right. They, of course, have no idea why they're here. They're just a young couple about to be married, and we thought we'd do a little romance department with them now. Jack, this is the thing. From the information you've given me, I've prepared some questions. When you go backstage, you listen to his answers to those questions. And if he tells a lie, you press the button that fits the kind of a lie he tells. Oh, yeah. You got that? Oh, yeah. You go on backstage now. The plot begins to thicken. Of course, the whole idea of this stunt is to prove that people who are getting married should tell each other the absolute truth. And some of the couples looking in tonight will be more inclined to follow the truth after they see what happens to this young couple. So right now they're on their way here. One of the boys should be bringing them in, and they don't know anything about what's happened so far. So here comes Mr. Ouija Foglia and Miss Diane Webster, I think it is. Oh, let's give our next guest a nice welcome. Come right out, folks. How do you do? You be seated? Well, your name is, uh... Louis Foglia. Can you talk up a little bit, Louis? Louis Foglia. boy, Louis. We want to hear you. And your name is? Diane Weaver. Now, you folks uh, were invited down because you're getting married uh, next Saturday. That's right. Uh-huh. Louis, what business are you in? Uh, I work for my dad, cement work. Uh-huh. And uh, what do you intend to be eventually? Do you have any uh, final ambition? Yes, uh, perhaps a construction contractor. Uh-huh. Contractor. A contractor, uh-huh. Yeah. How did you two happen to meet? Oh, it was at uh, a college party in uh, Santa Barbara. I was attending the University of California at Santa Barbara, and I met Diane at one of the parties. Uh, Louis, uh, do you have a nickname, by the way? Lou. Lou. Lou, uh, I'll tell you what. 
You've told her everything she needs to know about you. Oh, yes. You haven't concealed anything from her? No, no, thing. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you tell me the whole truth and nothing but the truth, the complete, absolute truth, for the next five minutes, I'm going to see that she gets a $1,000 diamond and sapphire ring. Yeah. How does that sound? Sorry. <laughs> okay. Now, is that a deal? Sure is. A beautiful Lucien Picard diamond and sapphire ring worth $1,000. And since we must determine whether or not you are telling the truth, do you mind if we use the latest scientific lie detector? Must you? <laughs> Have you ever had one? Uh, no, I haven't. It works entirely according to your rate of pulse and just hold perfectly still. <laughs> You know you look better this way? <laughs> look around, Louie. That is our lie detector. All right. Now, all you have to do is to tell the truth for the next five minutes. Were you ever in love with any other girl, truly in love with any other girl before you met Diane? No. No. We seem to be getting some vibrations. Did you hear that bell? Yes. Well, now that bell said a fib. Not a real big fib uh, lie, but just a kind of a fib. Perhaps I should ask you, does the name... Um, does the name Dolores mean anything to you? No. No. <laughs> you made the white lie department that time, Louie. Are you sure she doesn't mean... You know the name Dolores. You know it, don't you? Oh, uh, come to think of it, it's uh, just in front of the family. What it is. It's an old friend of the family? That's right. That's right. Uh -huh. <laughs> Diane, you notice what's happening in back of you? Yeah. Was it anything more than that? Uh, puppy love, I guess you could call it one of those things. Oh, it's a long time ago, huh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> By golly, he's finally telling the truth. <laughs> he gets a Nobel Prize for that one. Well, Diane, we're, we're, we're determining what he's going to do. Do you think a marriage should start off, Louie, on good, solid financial grounds? For instance, do you owe any debts to anybody? Oh, no. You don't know anybody. We got a fib on that one. Do you? I don't. I don't mean anything big. Anything small. Oh, I owe about a hundred dollars to a friend of mine. You do owe a hundred bucks. Very interesting. Do you have? Uh, <laughs> no more debt. Uh, no, that's just just that one. Did you know about that? No. You didn't know he had any debts. Do you have any debts, Diane? No. Uh-huh. Well, there's something pretty cute about it. <laughs> the good thing, the thing is attached to you. In the good old days, Louie, when you weren't engaged, were you a kind of a wolf? Did you, uh, for instance, you try to kiss girls on the first date? Oh, no. Diane? 
Are you going to believe him or that lie machine? The machine. <laughs> Louie, you've already lost the ring about four out of five times. Now, I can't give you this ring unless you tell the truth at least once more. I'm going to give you one more chance. Is Diane the first girl you ever proposed to? Oh, yes, definitely. She is the first girl you ever proposed to. That's right. Louie, this machine works. You better tell us. Have you ever even suggested marriage to another girl? Well... (laughs) Very, very slightly. Very slightly. Very slightly. Louie... You really, you really, you really haven't told. What do you think of this, Diane? I'm learning a lot. You sure are. And would you like to see how our lie detector works, the inside scientific facts? Because, all right, bring out the lie detector, please, the operator, because this is a very interesting device. And the whole thing works on the principle of, 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 a, of a kind of a, of a... You didn't know he was here, did you? He's going to be my best man. Louis, Louis, he was going to be your best man. Check with Diane. <laughs> we did it to him, didn't we? Every time you told he he he, he gave me the tip off to the kind of questions asked, and knowing you to be a sneaky fellow, we figured you would go the other way, and you did, didn't you? Now, the best man, Jack Morales, you're supposed to have the ring, aren't you? He missed every time, and so, Louis, you missed on this beautiful Lucien Picard $1,000 diamond and sapphire ring. I'm very sorry, but you have lost it. However, that's not Diane's fault, is it? Not her fault. No, it isn't. She's a, a true blue type girl. You take the ring. There you are. And for being our best man tonight, and he is definitely the best man tonight, Diane, we're, <laughs> we're going to send him out of harm's way, because you may have the ideas about him. We're going to send you on a little vacation trip up to the Sahara Hotel in Las Vegas. Would you like to do that? You're a single man. I'm a single man. And we're going to give you a trip up there on a big United Airlines DC-7 mainliner and give you a dollar to get started <laughs> and have some fun. And uh, you'll forgive us, won't you, Ouija? Yes. (laughs) See, I know all about you. I know your nickname and everything else. And by the way, um, I didn't ask you scarcely anything tonight, Diana. I want to ask you, since you've already asked him some things, have you told him everything about your past? Yes. connected to the machine and look how it works. I think we better leave them to work things out, don't you, Jack? Come on. On our last show, you may recall, we put together several interesting elements. First, 
a couple of young University of Oklahoma students who had come to Hollywood on a vacation, and secondly, a trip to the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy for a very interesting experiment reliving the days of Galileo. So let's bring our young students back, Joe Smeltzer and Jack Close. Come on out, boys, and let's find out what happened. Let's see, now, you're Joe. That's right. And you're Jack. Yes. Jack and Joe went up the hill of Leaning Tower of Pisa. Well, we'll throw that one away. Joe, now, let's see. You you flew across the Atlantic. You flew to New York. Uh-huh. Got aboard a big KLM, Royal Dutch Airline, flew across to Rome. Uh-huh, that's right. I had a wonderful trip on the KLM. Oh, yeah. And how about Rome? Did you like Rome? Had a fabulous time. You're a medical student. That's right. So so um, did you go to any hospitals over there? Uh, no. No, no chance for that. You were too busy. Then we drove you down to Pisa. Uh-huh. That's how many hours drive about? Oh, it's about three and a half hours drive. From Rome, uh-huh. Now, the idea was for you to go up to the Leaning Tower of Pisa and lean over and drop a peach. Who had the peach? Well, I had the peach and the grape. Oh, you went to the top of the tower? Yeah. And you took the peach and the grape? That's right. And what did you do? Well, I stood at the bottom and made sure they landed at the same time. Or yeah. at least we hoped they would. Yeah, you thought that they would land at the same time. No, I thought they You thought they'd land at the same time. You thought the heavy I didn't one. know, so I was going to stay at the bottom. All right. Now, oh, by the way, were there any guards or anything around the, the Pisa Tower? Yeah, there were so many guards at the top that I, I went back down and, and got the guy that was driving the car, and he went up on the back side of the tower and talked to the guards while I ran around the front side and dropped it off. Oh, you didn't think they'd let you drop anything no. off there, huh? <laughs> so you had a decoy, our driver, That's right. your driver, got the guards around. And talked to him. There were about three, I believe. Yeah, well, tell me this. When you're up in the Leaning Tower piece, you went up the top, too, didn't you? Uh-huh, yes. Does it give you kind of a, a feeling that the whole thing is going to fall over the way it looks like in the pictures we see? It certainly does. You feel like you're, when you're walking up, you have to lean over all the way up. Did you have any worries? Did anybody say it might fall over? No, it's supposed to fall in another 160 years, I believe. Oh, 160 years. Well, we won't do any more stunts there. Uh, but at any event, this is the important thing. You went over on a scientific experiment to determine whether or not two objects of different weights, when released from a high object or a high building, would hit the ground at the same time. You were at the bottom. Uh-huh. Yes. Tell us. They did. They hit at the same time, and uh, the uh, grape disappeared hit and disappeared, and the, pe the peaches splattered all over the ground. But at the same time? At the same time. Well, it seemed like it did. It, uh, as near as I could tell, they landed at the same time. Yeah. And you were at the top of the Leaning Tower Peak. That's right. How many stories high would you say it was? Hmm. About probably 15, I don't 15 know. 15 stories about. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here are two young fellows selected out of our Hollywood tourists. We gave you a wonderful vacation to Italy. It was, you weren't there very long, of course. But you did prove that Galileo was right, and we will not repeal the law of gravity. And now that you're back in Hollywood, or you're our guests up at the Hollywood Plaza Hotel, we'll pick up your tabs for your trips around town. And, of course, we'll fly you back to the University of Oklahoma. Good luck to you. Thank you. Hope you had an exciting time Thank and you'll you. be the talk of the campus. Goodbye, boys. Bye, bye. Thank you very much. How much do you know about cancer? Do you know the simple facts about this disease that may someday save your life or the life of someone you love? Free information is available from your American Cancer Society. Address cancer in care of your local post office. The address again, cancer in care of your local post office. Well, tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we're featuring puppy love on People Are Funny. Puppy love is when a young man sees a slick chick 
and starts acting like a sick duck. But at all events, it's a lot of fun to see young people in the throes of their first adolescent experiences and meeting and courting and wooing the opposite sex. And so People Are Funny has invited down to our program tonight a special guest that our scouts went out into the junior high schools around Hollywood looking for, and it was no easy trick to find this young fellow because, well, I'll let him tell you why it was a little trick. A young junior high school boy. Come on out here, Gary. Your name is Gary? Graham. Mr. Graham, you're how old? Thirteen. Boy, you're a big one for thirteen. You're almost six feet tall, aren't you? Yes, sir. Now, Gary, will you tell the folks what we went looking for and why we picked you when it comes to the subject of girls? Well, you picked me because I had never asked a girl out on a date before, and so that's what I'm going to do now. That's right. We told him to come on down and let us watch him asking his first girl out on his first date. And, Gary, before we go any farther with this stunt, I'd like to know, uh, have you ever thought seriously of it and just backed away at the last minute? Are you shy? Yes. You're a little shy. Yeah, yeah. You, you like girls? Well, I guess so. Yeah, they can't play baseball, of course. No. Uh, can you dance? Yes. Oh, you did learn to dance. Mm -hmm. So you plan to take a girl out? Yes, I do. How did you learn to dance? Well, my sister taught me. She's 16. Yeah, uh-huh. And uh, any particular type of girl you like, you prefer, you don't like girls generally, but blondes, brunettes, redheads? No. Yeah. Now, you made out a list of girls you know in your class that you might like to date. Do you have it with you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You got the phone numbers? Yes, sir. You got two girls here. What's the difference between these two girls? One's Marianne, the other's Patty. Marianne, yeah. describe her. Well, she's real short and real... Jolly and kind of cute, huh? You kind of eyed her down the down the classroom. Yes, I did. And Patty, what about her? What does she look like? Well, she's pretty tall. And she's a brunette. She's cute. Yeah, and jolly. Not especially. Oh. <laughs> Marianne and Patty. Well, you got the Marianne on top. You want to call her? Okay. Now uh, sit down there in the uh, the phone booth, Gary. Now we have here. A little clock. When Mary Ann answers on the phone, we're going to give you 90 seconds. That clock will go around once and a half for you to make a date with her. Now, you got in mind anything coming up in school that you might ask her out for? There is a dance after school tomorrow. Oh, how much does it cost? 20 cents per couple. Oh. Who's playing? Guy Lombardo? <laughs> No, just they have records at the school. Oh, they have records. All right. Now, uh, suppose you ask her to that dance. Uh, this is the first time. If you can get a date with Mary Ann at this telephone number in 90 seconds, I'm going to give you a beautiful Stromberg Carlson High Five phonograph outfit. That's a beautiful big set that plays records with high and low and all the rest of them, huh? One o'clock, two o'clock. <coughs> okay. I'll put on the earphones just to check up on you, although we'll all hear both sides of the conversation. Is that the way an earphone goes on? All right, Gary, the number is a state number, so if you lift up the phone and dial O, that's the operator. Just leave it right there. And when the operator answers, you just turn right around so we can see you. There's the number. 
State 98306, please. Big one? 98306. Thank you. What is your number, please? Hollywood 20733. Don't be nervous that the thing doesn't start. Thank you. Do a good selling job now. This girl knows you. <laughs> Has the phone ring? Hello? Oh, is Mary in there? Just a moment. Now speak up, boy. This is the most important moment of your life. Mary? Who is it? Gary? Oh, Gary who? Graham? Oh, hi. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? Fine, thank you. What are you doing? Oh, not much. What are you doing? Well, I was just thinking there's a school dance tomorrow. I'd wonder if you'd go if you'd go with me. Oh, I didn't know you went out on dates. Well, this is the first one. Oh. Well, do you know how to dance? Yes. Oh. Well, gee, Gary, I don't know. I'm such short notice. I wouldn't know what to wear. Yeah. 30 seconds. Anything. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I was supposed to be a hostess at the dance, so I don't know how it would work out. Well, you could turn down the hostess to go to the dance, couldn't you? Well, um... You know, I've been seeing quite a lot of this one boy, and I don't know whether he would like it too well. And, um, I just don't know. We're not going steady, of course, but then, well. <laughs> well, uh, can we just go with me this time? 15 seconds. Say yes or no. Say yes or no, please. Well. I don't know. I just don't know that I should or not. Please? I just don't know. I don't know that I can make it or not. Well, you have to. Well, I just... Goodbye. Oh. <laughs> Gary. Boy, wasn't that a wasn't that an ordeal? <laughs> Do you think all baits are gonna be that tough? I hope not. But you did it, didn't you? Yep. She With did a little help. Huh? With a little help. I think you got about an extra ten seconds there, yeah. huh? Mm-hmm. But you did it. Now this will give you confidence to go ahead in the future. Mm-hmm. Say who's that? You see, we got that list from you the other day, and we brought the girls down. We had them in a, in a telephone booth backstage. Mary Ann, we fooled them, didn't we? We sure did. But uh, how about the date now? Why, sure. Gary? Well, that sounds good enough for me. Mary Ann, how old are you? Thirteen. Thirteen. Now, you've had dates before. Well, going to dances, yes. Yeah, things like that. What did your dad do? Oh, he's a chef at the Statler Hotel. Well, you're marrying a family where both the mother and father cook if you get into that family. <laughs> well, I think they make a charming couple. Stand a little closer. Hook your arm through his. Look down at her. Look up at her. <laughs> I pronounce you boy and girl. 
Man to man, Gary. What is the ideal size family? Four. Boy, he's progressing rapidly, isn't he? From no dates to four children. Well, Mary Ann, you and Gary have started down life's path hand in hand, arm in arm. And we're delighted to have looked in on a teenager making his first date. In case the dance gets dull, how many lessons have you had? Well, I haven't counted them, couple. I think we better give you a couple of our people are funny games to play in case he steps on your feet. And you each get a beautiful Stromberg Carlson hi-fi phonograph. There's nothing finer than a Stromberg Carlson. Goodbye, Gary. Goodbye, Ann. Goodbye. <laughs> well, that's all for tonight. Next week, somebody's going to have a chance to buy a brand new radio for a dollar. Tune in and find out why. Good night, everybody. This program was transcribed from Hollywood. That's all the time we have for now, folks. I hope that you'll be able to join me next time. Until then, have a good week. Bye for now. If you've enjoyed the shows you've heard during the past hour, be sure to tune in again next week, same time, same station, when once again, we'll listen to programs that are remembered today thanks to the involvement of Canadians in old-time radio. This is Devin Wilkins speaking.